0: Welcome to the Active Shooter Incident Management Podcast. My name is Bill Godfrey, your host of the podcast. We're happy to have you back with us. And today we have uh, three of the instructors with us uh, to talk about uses of the ASIM checklist beyond just active shooter. So we have, as many of you know, the Active Shooter Incident Management Checklist, which lays out this uh, process but just because it's titled Active Shooter doesn't mean that that's the only thing it's usable for. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. I'd like to introduce you to the three instructors that are with us. We have uh, Terrence Weems uh, from the law enforcement side. Terrence, good to have you back in the house.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. We have, of course, Adam Penley, uh, also from the law enforcement side. Many of you know Adam. Adam, good to have you back. Happy to be here. And, of course, the inimitable Mark Rame, uh from the Fire EMS side like myself. Mark, good to see you. Thank you, Bill. All right, so um, again, as we talked about in the opening, we titled it the Active Shooter Incident Management Checklist for a lot of reasons, but it's usable for more than just active shooter events. Adam, why don't you open us up and uh, kind of start uh, talking about it in a little bit generically, and then we'll roll from there.
2: Sure, so I mean, one of the things about the ASIM checklist as a validated process of building an incident management from the ground up, you know, so many of us in law enforcement, fire, and EMS over the years have um, have trained on the incident command system, and we go to the, to the standardized FEMA classes. But oftentimes, we see the final org chart. So we see this um, managing an incident from the from kind of the top-down model. You know, you see all these positions filled out, and what you find is is that that's not really that doesn't work in in the field. So one of the good things about the ASIM checklist process is we build a response from the first arriving unit that then builds from there. Additional units arrive, they start becoming teams, and then group supervisors arrive, and then incident command arrives. You have branch directors. So as an incident unfolds, um, more elements are added from the ground up. So here's the point, is that The active shooter incident management checklist can be used for other types of of rapid response uh, on the law enforcement side and especially any sort of rapid response that involves an integrated response with fire EMS. So as we're arriving to a violent incident, um, it could be a robbery in progress. It could be uh, some other type of crime of violence. The idea of having the initial contact teams uh, stabilize the scene, having a a tactical group supervisor come in and, and start managing that inner perimeter and managing those follow-on resources, teaming up shoulder to shoulder with um, fire and EMS, and then having you know the the higher command come in and be part of the command post, and all the elements that we talk about in the ASIM checklist, the the staging manager and uh, intel and PIO all fit in um, in the same way in almost any type of uh, you know rapid response
0: uh, response from law enforcement, fire and EMS. So things like uh, mass shooting, I think that's a no-brainer. Right. Um, violent attacks, whether it's with a edged weapon or something else. Vehicle through a crowd.
2: Sure, absolutely. And because anything that either has the potential for multiple injuries or has multiple injuries um, you're going to follow the same process and uh, you know and I think it's important to follow that process even on those different type of incidents in an all hazards approach because um, if you only pull out uh, the concepts of active shooter incident management just for active shooter you're going to be rusty. Um, Fortunately um, we you know, we do. We see a lot of these across the country, but we don't see them all the time in each of our jurisdictions, right? So, you have to find other opportunities to to keep those skills uh, strong.
0: So, you're uh, almost like a generic response process, Adam. Is that what you're thinking? Something along the that that for a, a subset group of calls on the law enforcement side, this should be the default response? Sure, kind of like your standard response model
2: where where you know that um, if you have something that's either in progress or that has just occurred that is a violent scene with, with multiple injuries. Um, like a drive-by or something uh, like sure, that? Sure, a drive-by um, in any sort of, uh, you know, even if it's a domestic violence in progress or something that might involve a hostage barricade situation, there's a lot of examples of this that, um, you know, we could talk about or where there's opportunities to, to really engage each element of the active shooter incident management checklist.
0: Interesting. I, you know, I'd like to revisit this idea of, of that as a uh, of kind of setting up a default response process. Maybe that's, a, maybe that's a good idea for another topic. So let's go around. Uh, Mark, um, what are the things that are on uh, your mind? What pops into your head about other uses of, of the ASIM checklist process and where it might be valuable?
3: Well, the first thing I think of is that nine times out of ten, the boots on the ground are going to do an incredible job every single time. They go out there and they get the job done. The weakest link as far as I'm concerned, what I've seen in, in my career, is generally the command staff is where it sort of fails and they fall apart. And it's because a lot of the things we're exposed to, those big events, maybe once in a lifetime you get involved in something like that. Maybe you trained on something, maybe you read about it, but you don't practice it enough. You don't get involved in some of those environments. So when we talk about using the ASIM checklist for other environments, it really does put us all in the same stage or platform where when we have these big events, we're ready to perform. And as I see us responding to more and more of these uh, domestic uh, uh, you know, disputes, these civil unrest, these environments where... We're having what looks like some type of domestic terrorism um, against our communities, against what we consider the norms. I think it really behooves us as public safety responders to step up and utilize a process like ASIM um, to respond to those events. Um, Again, as I said before, generally I see the command side of the response to these big events as the weakest link. You know, again, those, those law enforcement officers that go in there to that threat, they're going to do their job. The fire EMS people, give them good direction and equipment. They're going to do a great job out there, and they're going to perform to the standard we expect. But if our incident command side of that picture doesn't get um, their acts together and do it right, it's going to screw up the whole environment. So, again, utilizing the ASIM a checklist for more than just an active shooter incident will make us better in the whole as a public service or a public response uh, to these type of environments.
0: So you're kind of talking almost like what Adam was saying about having a default response process but it's not just a law enforcement response process it's uh, an integrated one it runs across the disciplines and I don't I don't know that I've ever I've I've ever seen or heard of anybody else doing that before. I definitely think that's one worth coming back and revisiting uh in a future podcast. terence Terrence, what um what jumps out at you as you know, lessons learned or places where you think this process could be helpful uh in your walk of life?
1: Yeah, actually one of the things that my one of the things that uh that my agency we try and do with everything, anything outside of a normal day to day event, we utilize NIMS for that. But in looking at the ASIM model, one of the things that comes to mind immediately is a multi vehicle crash with a ton of injuries and some deaths where the road, whether it be an interstate or a county road, is shut down. So now you have opportunity to put this into effect, actually building, as we said before, from the ground up. So that first person arrives, sizes up the incident. They know what they have, and at the same time, they don't know what they have. All they see is a scattered uh, mess. You mean like one
0: of these big, massive pileups that we hear about on the news from time to time?
1: Right. A few years ago, we had one uh, on I-94 up near the Michigan State line. A number of vehicles... Semis and all of that. But what took this to the next level it was like 12 degrees. Ouch. Uh, one thing that we forget about is cell phones generally don't work very well, or the battery life it dies when it's extremely cold. Plus, you have all of the vehicles out there. Your batteries on your portables are dying, and things like that. So, what this does is this gives us that opportunity to build from the ground up, now putting into place. Everything that we need. And I think that that's outstanding, even with the reunification and and getting RTFs out and and everything that we teach, it is able to be utilized even in a situation like that. You wouldn't necessarily think about it in that manner, but it's very helpful uh, because, again, you're using it as a general response to just about everything that you're doing. And if you're doing it all the time, you're practicing it all the time. So when something huge happens, you're able to follow through. Yeah, it's
0: really fascinating. I wouldn't have thought about using that process in terms of one of those big, massive pileups. But you're right. There's a lot. There's a lot of overlap there. There's a lot of things that uh, fit and help. All right. What else, Adam? What else is on your list? So, I mean, Terrence brings up
2: the idea of RTFs and the integrated response, um, and and it really strikes me that you don't want to wait for a violent active shooter type event to get and teach uh, fire EMS and police to, to move together, to carry equipment together, uh, to find the safe path in and out. So even at the crash site, um, you know, fire EMS, uh, they, they know their job, like uh, like Mark mentioned. They're going to do a great job, but we've already assessed the scene when we first arrive. We know where the injuries are, and so us working together as law enforcement to, to work with EMS and work together as an RTF to move into that scene is really important. Um, but another great opportunity to do that in an even less stressful environment is any of our communities that, that have um, special events. You know, we all have um, carnivals and, and fairs and uh, parades and sporting events uh, and an arena events in our communities. And, you know, in, in all my years of working special events, every time you have a, a drunk person that's down that is going to be treated by EMS – you're going to need a law enforcement officer there. And, <laughs> right. You yeah. know, And every time law that's enforcement uh, responds to a fight, they're going to probably need medical there at some point. So right from the start, in our planned events, we can schedule RTFs to work together. So you have the rescue task force that's already assigned, um, and they're at various locations throughout the event. So when an incident occurs, they can learn to move together. They can meet each other. They can Uh, learn uh, about each other's equipment and about their each other's uh, processes that way you know god forbid three days from now we have an active shooter event at a warehouse we've already learned to do that so at staging those officers and fire and ems that are working together as an rtf maybe they've done this before and maybe they move into the scene um you know more effectively
0: that's a really interesting idea of deploying it at uh planned events or special events um what um what are some of the ones where you've seen it? I mean, you guys have uh, the NFL games up by you, and I, I can I can recall you mentioning that you've deployed it on that uh, before. What are the some of the other types of um, uh, of examples you've got?
2: So actually, just this past week, we had the opportunity to. Um, it was announced that our city would be the location of a big, uh, like college, uh, party crowd sort of thing. Um, and we expected an additional, you know, ten or 20,000 uh, folks to be down at our beach area. Um, again, you know, we anticipate uh, there to be, you know, crowded streets and lots of drinking and possibly fighting and things along those lines. So one of the...
0: They do seem to go hand yeah, in hand. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And so uh, part of our incident action plan was uh, teaming up uh, our bike officers with uh, some, some bike or some uh, mobile med unit teams uh, on the fireside, and we called them on the incident action plan we called them rtfs so we had them uh, strategically stationed throughout the beaches area so they could provide that uh, rapid response and and work together and it provides in that environment it provides immediate security to the medical um, but it also provides uh, medical for the opportunity uh, to you know again to work together we meet each other in the less stressful events so it's easier to put that together during the active shooter
0: It's interesting. It also provides an opportunity, I assume, to begin to get everybody used to the terminology, uh, the idea of the teamwork and who talks to who and who reports to whom and whatnot, all those things?
2: Absolutely, yes.
0: Okay, cool. Um, What about civil unrest? That's been in the news a lot recently, um, as has... Uh, a apparent rise in, or what at least would seem like in a rise in mass shootings, a lot of generalized violence we're hearing about on a fairly regular basis, a lot of civil unrest. Um, Is there a role there, do you think? Oh,
1: for sure. And generally, if you look at it, um, depending on what state you go to, you'll have a number of, let's say, protests or those civil unrest situations. A lot of them are pre-planned. However, those that arise out of in the middle of nowhere, you're going to have one or two officers responding initially. So now that gives you that opportunity to put this in, plan, in place uh, right then. So you have that opportunity because you, although it's not an active shooter event, it is escalating. You're going into an unknown, but this event Generally, when you get into the civil unrest, it generally doesn't the fire don't go out rather quickly that it continues to escalate until it blows up and uh Unfortunately, we have uh seen it happen last year and uh even a few this year, but uh putting it and putting that plan in place, it helps and just like Adam was saying earlier, if we do it on those small events, you're building those relationships, and I think that's the most important thing to get. Uh, get the different disciplines together, trusting and believing that they're going to be able to support one another.
0: That's really interesting. So, and I and I, you know what? I, I see the fit on the civil unrest that comes up unexpectedly. On the on the planned ones, Adam and I know you've had your hand in a lot of these um, from the management side and having to put together incident action plans for the planned events. Uh, when it comes to the idea of demonstrations or potential civil unrest, things like that, for a planned event, when you're putting together an IEP, uh, I assume you would distinguish in the structure the difference between the function of a contact team that would be deployed if things go sideways versus, and I don't know what you guys call them, forgive me, because you know law enforcement, obviously not my background, but like the, the guys that are working the line. Um, field force. The field force. Um, how would you... If you were pre-planning the event, how would you kind of mix that, that uh, ASIM uh, org chart, if you will, that, that active shooter incident management uh, checklist structure with the field force? Have you done that before? Have you got any ideas off the top of your head? Oh, sure. I mean, so field
2: force is just another um, team structure underneath uh, the law enforcement branch. Um, it's you know, So you would have a field force group with multiple teams underneath there, very similar to the perimeter group. So in the law enforcement branch under the ASIM checklist, um, they're responsible for the tactical group supervisor and the contact teams that are underneath there. Um, And in a civil unrest sort of way, you may have uh, forward-deployed teams that monitor various protest locations or counter-protest locations, and they're your initial contact teams. And um, if if they need more resources, they would call that up through Tactical, who would get approval from law enforcement branch and the incident commander, and those additional resources could be deployed. Um, And it, but it all still falls under that uh, same structure uh, that we build. Um, Essentially, we're still building it from the ground up because even for a planned event, you're going to look at at those locations that you have um, that you know you're going to have events at, and you're you're assigning. The, the right number of resources to each event with those additional resources available. And one of the things that I know Mark can probably attest to is, is that, you know, you know that the fire department is going to get calls during that time. And it, and we always talk about clock. You have to beat the clock, right? So um, if they're going to respond in a, in a rapid manner, they don't want to have to leave the station and go stand by somewhere. It's better for us to think about why don't we pair up, uh, law enforcement right from the start you know so
3: yeah one of the uh, <clears throat> kind of a sidebar issue outside of the medical response using rtfs is we talk more and more of, of fire as a weapon so why don't we when we think about these civil unrest issues these planned protests why don't we even talk about tagging up law enforcement with fire in a strike team type of an environment that is similar to a rescue task force concept where we take a a fire engine with a couple law enforcement officers who are ready to respond to those, you know, fires that pop up in these civil unrest environments. You know, we, for fire, we tend to, you know, sit there and stage and we wait and we wait and we wait until they clear out that whole area. But what if we built out those teams ahead of time, not only on the EMS side for Rescue Task Force, but also those strike teams for that fire as a weapon environment that, that we can get in there and quickly start using maybe deck guns, deluge guns or something that are more unstaffed where we just dump a ton of water on that, that particular fire and then get out of that environment and leave law enforcement to continue to work on that social unrest environment.
0: So instead of a rescue task force, a firefighting task
3: force. Exactly. Yes. And But again, we're going to include law enforcement part of that component. You know, instead of just fire coming in there and, and going to do their job of putting out suppressing that fire, we engage a law enforcement component with that, that fire engine or engines, and they respond in there as a team. And, and again... Those law enforcement officers, as we do with RTFs, don't leave their wingmen. They stay with those people throughout and protect them. That gives fire more confidence that, you know, law enforcement's got our back. We can do our job. We we can concentrate on that suppression activities and have don't have to worry so much about those, you know, protesters that are the, in the background. Yeah.
2: So we, we actually had a lot of success with that in my area during 2020. Um, we would... That would be part of the assignments, is we would assign a law enforcement element uh, to each of the uh, firehouses that was in the area that we knew would be affected. And that was their job. They stayed at the fire station. Now, the only bad news is we introduced law enforcement officers to recliners, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs>
0: but oh, you're just jealous. Um,
2: <laughs> well, we just give them applications. Right. They didn't come wrong over. Um, but, you know, all, all joking aside, we, you know, whenever they were toned out to... Um, any event. Because remember, we've talked about this many times as well. I mean, the, the other stuff that's happening in your city is still happening. You know, you're still going to have responses to other types of medical emergencies, are responsible, you know, so if you get dispatched to a dumpster fire that is in the affected area, was it set on fire on purpose because of the civil unrest? So pretty much all of those calls for service out of that station, you know, have to have a, a law enforcement element along with them.
0: That That's really interesting. I think, that that in itself probably is uh, a whole nother podcast to kind of talk about that topic and talk about that concept.
3: Well, and Bill, you can take it a step further when we talk about our response to, like, hurricanes, <laughs> tornadoes, or whatever it happens to be. When we know that somewhere along the line there's going to be some looting. There's going to be some kind of a, a crime environment when we're trying to go out there and check these, these buildings to see if the occupants are, you know, still there. If there's anyone that's injured in this collapsed structure. If we engage law enforcement with fire and EMS with these rescue teams, then we can take care of all of this stuff at the exact same time. You know, they can go out and start doing their windshield surveys, checking these structures. Law enforcement's making sure that no crimes are taking place, you know, involving the, their individuals in regard to, um, you know, get witness statements if there were crimes in, involved when they're going through. So we can expand this thing out continuously when we talk about public safety response, incorporating fire, EMS, and law enforcement in teams.
0: You know, it's funny, as you describe that, it almost sounds like we're talking about an all-hazards integrated response.
3: Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm.
0: Interesting. You know, Adam, you mentioned one a little earlier that I'd like to jump back to, uh, and and that was hostage barricade you kind of threw out. um, And – can you talk a little bit about that? Can you and Terrence kind of talk a little bit about some of the challenges that come up in those types of incidents that would warrant that that integrated response? Sure.
2: So I think that when that type of incident mirrors the ASIM checklist process very closely because you get that initial dispatch of an, an active scene of some sort with if if a hostage barricade started as an argument or an armed argument of some sort it turns into a hostage barricade that initial arriving units um, are going to essentially form a contact team give a size up report um, engage if they're able to or contain if if they're required to um, and call for additional resources and i think um, if you have an additional contact team that's going to cover the rear of the building, other contact teams, or an apprehension team that's responsible for if the if the suspect gives up or tries to escape. You're, so you have multiple teams downrange, and and now you have a lot of resources already at the crisis site. And so just like it's very true in the active shooter environment, it's important for somebody to stay put and now become that fifth man or that tactical uh, group supervisor, the tactical uh, person, to, to now manage how everyone else. Because the, the worst thing that you can do at a – Hostage barricade situation to just have everyone show up at the front door, right? Because you're gonna you're gonna call you're gonna potentially aggravate the situation. You're gonna have too many people trying to do one task. So again, managing uh, having that fifth man or tactical manage the responses and set a staging area becomes critically important. Um, and then all the follow on resources after that, you're going to have fire, EMS come to your staging location in case the hostage barricade. Uh, goes poorly you're going to have negotiators you're going to have to have intel you're going to have a lot of uh, additional follow-on resources as you also continue to to build this response so you have that tactical uh, a little further downrange. hopefully you can get a triage or a fire ems uh, officer to work side by side with tactical again to make those decisions about hey if the if the hostage taker goes active we're going to do this if they um, release hostages, we're going to need this. So there's a lot of close inter- integration downrange. And then the integrated response at the command post also becomes
1: uh, critically important. Extremely important. And one of the things that you want to make sure that we're doing is is communicating the need. Making sure that we have the resources that uh, that we need in, in each one of those situations. Because just like you said, once you have that Hostage taker, who knows where it's going to go uh, from that point, and having your having all of your ducks in a row even before you need them just means that that experience is going to be that much better and and most mm-hmm. likely have a positive outcome.
0: It's it's a fascinating topical area that you know. Frankly, Mark, I don't know about you, but it's uh, not one I feel like we we had a whole lot of it. Uh, training, training with, and uh, you know, uh, for those particular types of events. So it's kind of fascinating to hear you guys describe that. Um, the one other area that I want to talk about before we leave this topic is the idea of area command. So um, while it's uh, a component of the active active shooter incident management curriculum in the intermediate and the advanced class, when we talk about complex coordinated attacks and how to manage those. One of the things that we always say in class is that, hey, you know, this area command tool can be used for more than just this thing. Um, When you've got complex investigations that are crossing jurisdictions, you've got a manhunt. uh, As we sit here today, we've had yet another tragedy with uh, a police officer being shot and there's an aggressive manhunt on for, for the suspect, not too far from where we are. Um, Talk a little bit about that idea of area command as a tool that can help us more effectively manage these events and how we can use it, what we can use it for, and and the benefit of it. Well, from a law enforcement perspective, I
2: think you already hit on that. And we know, we talk about a lot in active shooter events, that you have the minimum of a three scene. right? You have the crisis site itself. The transportation the suspect used, and then also where they live or where they came from. Uh, but that expands even further. We've seen incidents where um, we know a single suspect has uh, committed a violent act in more than one place, and it may not necessarily even just be an active shooter type event, that they have committed acts in multiple places or, like you mentioned, this manhunt situation that is by its very nature going to cross multiple jurisdictions. Um, you can We can all look back at the after-action reporting on the Boston Marathon, um, you know, we know that uh, we had a very serious crisis site uh, at the scene of the run that involved bombings, uh, that required multiple patients being treated, and ultimately, where it started, they ultimately have the jurisdictional authority because that's where the original crime was committed. But then you had another officer shot um, in a different jurisdiction. You had the suspect, um, you shootouts with the suspect in yet another jurisdiction, and ultimately, the capture of the final suspect. In, in yet another jurisdiction. And and so an area command concept um, can become very important to manage those critical resources. And that's what we talk about all the time. You know, you have these multiple sites. You only have so many SWAT teams. You only have so many armored vehicles. You only have so many, uh, you know, specialized uh, canine units and such. Um, so you can't just chase your tail every time a new location pops up that everything heads that way. You have to be very deliberate about uh, managing those uh, critical resources. So, and I think there's opportunities to practice that um, on, a, on a more regular basis.
3: You know, Bill, I've set up several area commands, and it's not um, directly related to what we do in regard to ASIM, it, <clears throat> but it does explain how an area command does function. Uh, one of the examples I try to give in class is that uh, we had a tornado touchdown multiple places. On the east side of our county and the typical dispatch was full complement which was in in that particular time was three engine companies a rescue a battalion chief and an ems captain to each one of the sites we ended up having four sites within a couple square miles of each other the problem with that as a shift commander is that that one event basically stripped down my entire command staff from my county right then and there it was gone And I said, I can't do that. There's no way I can do that. I have to control this environment as a shift commander. So I stood up an area command and reduced the response to each one of those events down to one engine company, one rescue, and then held a battalion chief with me at the area command post. Now, I know this doesn't follow the practice we utilize in the ASIM, but it does make sense when you talk about controlling your response, your resources to those particular events. And I've stood up a lot of area commands in regard to brush fires because, again, if you sent a full complement brush fire with, uh, you know, structural exposure to multiple sites after a lightning storm the night before, you're going to strip down your, your resources very, very quickly. So area command has a, a vital role in our normal day-to-day responses when we have multiple events popping up in a geographical area. And standing up that area of command gives you that advantage of controlling the resources that you want to leave for that next event that might be right around the
1: corner. Right. And not just controlling uh, the assets that you have, but actually obtaining yeah, assets exactly. that you need. And uh, there used to be a time when I was growing up where uh, you did things in your own community, whether good or bad, you didn't necessarily venture out. And now in regards to violent crime and that sort of thing, people are crossing borders. Borders mean absolutely nothing. Uh, within, a, within an hour, I have two states, uh, Illinois and Michigan, that I can get to. So people traverse right down through, up and back. Uh, and one of the things that I, that I recognize is the need for that area of command because when you need equipment, you need bodies, you need those assets, one police department, especially if you're in a small rural area, you're not going to have the ability uh, to get what you need outside of an area of command. You know, I think
0: it's a fascinating topic. And to me, one of the, one of the key points that um, I think we always try to hit home on when we talk about complex coordinated attack, which is the idea of three or more attackers uh, attacking a single site uh, two or more sites under simultaneous attack or an act of terrorism that overwhelms a local's jurisdiction. Um, that's the definition we use. And the reason we use that is because it's the, from the responder's point of view. What does this call sound like and how should we respond? And that's kind of where I'm going with this. We've had numerous incidents across the country where an attacker was mobile and attacked several different sites, often crossing jurisdictions, And um, you've got those 911 calls coming in. you got the first hit over here, and, uh, you know, that's a a car accident with a couple people shot. And then three or four minutes later, uh, a mile down the road, mile and a half, you've got some more people that are shot. You've got another shooting coming in. And then four minutes later, it crosses into another jurisdiction. We had one of these that just occurred a few weeks ago where a suspect uh, killed – Several of his relatives in a home went to the local police station and began attacking that with a a semi-automatic rifle. Um, And then after shooting up the police station and trying to kill a bunch of people there, broke contact, and a few minutes later uh, began shooting up a park with a bunch of kids that was right next to a school. So imagine you're the 911 operator working that particular day and you're getting these calls. That's going to sound like, simultaneous attacks that's going to sound like a complex coordinated attack and at the very least even if it is the same attacker and they just went mobile you got three complex crime scenes in close range to each other and as mark said that's going to strip your resources if you do the same thing for every one of them and you got to get control of that Mm -hmm.
2: absolutely and i think it's um it's again part of the process you learn in the ASIM incident management um, process is that you don't send everyone to the first site right um, you have to control we have to have the organizational discipline to um, you know certainly get what you need to address the initial active threat but then manage everything else from there and that's why the fifth man concept is so important tactical and and we stress it over and over again the importance of staging so you are not over committing too many resources to that to that first site and if you practice that on you know, a multitude of different types of incident responses, both police fire and and, uh, those responses that we do together. Um, And and that's one of the things that's been my fear when we talk about complex coordinated attack is so many agencies across the country have done a fantastic job preparing for an active shooter event that the first time they have something that sounds like that, they send everyone, Uh, everyone from the patrolman to the chief in the kitchen sink, all pour into that first site and without following... This um, control of resources, managed response, you have too much at the first site and you're not prepared for that second, third, fourth site, whether it's a a mobile suspect who's on a spree or whether it's truly a complex coordinated attack. Either way, if you overcommit to the first scene and don't follow a process, uh, you're going to be left flat footed. All
0: right. I, I think that's a, a fabulous wrap-up and a, and a great place to to end this. Uh, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you have not already subscribed to the podcast, please click subscribe wherever you consume your podcast materials. And if you have any questions for us or suggestions for future podcast topics that you would like uh, the instructors or any of our uh, guests that we bring in from time to time to talk about, please send that to us at info. At c3pathways.com. Uh, that email again is info at c3pathways.com. Until next time, stay safe.